morning. My name is Pastor Lori. Welcome to E3. Welcome to actually week six of this 12-week series that we're doing called 12 Words. Does anybody, can anybody do the quick math? Does, any, does anybody know what that means? If we're in week six of a 12... Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We are halfway through this journey where we've been taking a look at what are the essentials of our spirituality. And we're using the metaphor of saying that over time, we acknowledge that we add things to those essentials. And we're using this metaphor of the boxes because we recognize, we were looking around and we were thinking, you know, what, are, what is a play, another place that gets cluttered? And right now, it's a really big thing to be decluttering your house, right? Everybody's watching the cool shows and reading the cool books and doing all the cool things. Most people are doing that. Some people who have all the extra time in the world to do that are doing that. Um, no, I, we think it's a really good thing is that we need to take a look at what are the things that we have accumulated over time. I can tell you that the Green family just recently, we just passed 20 years in our house. Woo! Right? Thank you. I was shocking when I did that math. Um, but you can imagine over time, over 20 years, that we may have accumulated some stuff. And so when I was preparing for today, I was thinking, well, you know, what are some places in my house that could use a good decluttering, right? Just typically, generally speaking. And so I came up with a couple of areas that I thought maybe we could think about. Um, again, just trying to get back to the essentials of what we need. We're lo looking at this for spirituality, but in this metaphor, we're going to look at our house. So I came, I, I said, you know what? A pantry needs to be organized, right? A pantry where we keep the food. Doesn't that look lovely? Look at how organized that is. Um, a linen closet, you know, where you keep like towels and stuff, that toiletries. Isn't that amazing? That is awesome. Um, you know, is anybody familiar with the concept of a junk drawer in your kitchen? Like that drawer that has all of this stuff, right? Look at how awesome that is. These are not pictures of my house. This is, I wouldn't dream of showing you pictures of any of those places in my house because if you want to take a look at a true junk drawer, you need only an invitation to my house. Um, I'm not going to do that. What I'm instead going to do, this is going to be embarrassing enough for me, is I'm going to show you some things that have accumulated over the past 20 years in our kitchen junk drawer that I pulled out this very weekend. So go on this journey with me, will you? This... This is an empty package of nightlight bulbs because it is ever so important to keep the packaging in case we are to throw away the empty, you know, the bad night nightlight bulbs and we might want to put them back in this package before disposing of them properly. So it is important that we keep this. Clearly, this is a significant thing. Um, this, I think, maybe is the cap of a marker from 1980. I'm not sure. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'm not even positive that's what it is. That's what it looks like to me. But in case we find this marker in our house and it doesn't have the cap, we are prepared. We have it covered. This is one of my favorite things. This is a notebook with exactly two blank pages. <laughs> for those shortage of paper emergencies that we might run across in our house. I don't even know what, oh, what these things are. These things right here, let's see, that's a clip, a little clip for no apparent reason. These are, these are pieces of plastic. I'm sure they're critical to the running of our household. I'm not positive. I'm not, they may even be for a toy, but I doubt it. If we've kept it for all this time, I'm sure that it's absolutely necessary. My favorite thing that I found was this right here. This is the back of a phone that I'm guessing was from maybe, I don't know, 1999 or 
early 2000s, perhaps. And so you know how everything just keeps coming around, right? Um, so when we have to replace our current phones with a new old phone and it needs a back, we are covered. We will have it. So there's our embarrassing examples of the things that we have accumulated over time that have no value, really. They don't seem to be serving a purpose. They are not beautiful. They are not critical to our house. But we have kept them in this very special drawer, taking up space in our house because just in case. And so I have a feeling that I'm not the only people and that the Greens aren't the only ones who maybe have done that in the past. You guys, you guys can get the point. Um, we have a tendency to do this with our spirituality as well. We have a tendency to be taught early on what the, the true essentials are, the very basics of our, of our faith, but at over time, we start adding other things to it, things that are unnecessary, things that actually take away from the basics, things like control and doubt and denial and fear. And fear is what we're going to talk about today. I want to start with what is fear, actually. So the definition in the dictionary of fear is to expect with alarm. I like that. I don't like that, but I do. To expect with alarm. It's an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Now, we come at fear, we, we build up fears in a couple of different ways. One of those ways is based on past experiences, real things that have happened to us in the past, right? I have a fear of navigating stairs. If you've been around D3 for a while, for at least a year, you know that I had a bad accident on a set of stairs last year. And it, it just traumatized me, and it caused a lot of physical and emotional pain for several months. It was a long, very long journey. Um, I had to have my ankle reconstructed. I had to have eight screws and a four-inch plate put in my ankle. I had to go through months of physical therapy. Um, I, had to, I had to learn how to, essentially how to walk again. It is even, I was having lunch with my friend Jay this week, and she even noticed that it has changed my gait in my walking. That's something that has happened. So I have a fear of stairs. Now, it doesn't keep me from navigating stairs. You see that. But that's based in a real, true experience. I also have a fear of getting into a car accident. I have been in a car accident before. I have seen the drivers in Tallahassee. This fear is based in real life experience. I also have a fear when my kids are driving because, God bless you, because my daughter had a terrible accident when she was 16 years old. She's fine, but it gave me a fear that I have not been able to completely overcome but it's based on a true thing that has happened. Now, we also can develop fears over time of things that didn't actually happen to us, things that we have never really experienced, but we have heard about, that we have heard could happen, but we haven't personally experienced. I have never personally experienced a tornado, but I am terrified of tornadoes. Is anybody else terrified of tornadoes? Okay, thank you. We have a respect for them. We have heard the stories and seen pictures of the devastation that tornadoes can cause. Now, I am from South Florida. That's where I was raised. I can deal with a hurricane. I can literally walk away from a hurricane. I have enough advance notice about a hurricane that I am not fearful of a hurricane. But a tornado scares me to death. 
Now, I don't have any personal experience that I'm drawing on. I just have seen pictures and heard stories. California, just two days ago, experienced, or just a couple of days ago, experienced one of the biggest earthquakes that they've ever experienced, the strongest, most powerful. Now, I've never experienced an earthquake, but I am afraid of earthquakes. I have seen pictures and heard stories of their devastation. Now, another example is I have never actually been chased by or bitten by a snake but I have absolutely had nightmares about that very thing happening. (laughs) It is not based in a true experience, but it's still a fear that I have. So here's the funny thing that I learned about fear, is that statistics have proven that most of the things we fear never actually become a reality. That's what I said. Hmm, isn't that interesting? A common problem that we have with fear is that we typically a lot of times, don't even recognize that that's where we're responding from. We don't understand that that's actually what we're feeling and what's fueling our response. The reason for that, or part of the reason for that, is because some of the same chemicals that give you that fight-or-flight feeling, that fight-or-flight instinct that comes up in you when you are in danger, some of those same chemicals are present when we experience happiness and excitement. Think about that and you are super excited about something, and your heart is racing, and your blood is, is, is racing also, isn't that the same thing that you feel when you are in fear? So it's easy to cling to fear. It's almost, in my, in my life, what, one of the things that I've experienced, and maybe this will be true for you, it's almost that it, we believe that if we hold on to our fear of something happening, it'll actually keep it from happening. If I can just stay afraid that my child is going to get into a car accident, it'll actually keep it from happening. Has anybody else experienced something like that? If I can just be afraid that I am going to get sick, then I won't actually get sick. Because if I release those fears, if I loosen the grip on those fears, those terrible things might actually happen. So we hang on to those fears and we pack them in our box. I did some research, some of the most common fears that people experience, see if any of these resonate with you. A terminal illness, a crippling injury, unexpected huge expense. Who doesn't love a huge surprise HVAC bill in the middle of July, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I know a couple of people are experiencing that. The loss of, lo- uh, loss of a job is a real fear that people experience. Losing a loved one or just losing a relationship even. These can all be things that we actually try to control with our fear. Our fear of the thing is us trying to control the thing. Fear and worry is a self-centered focus on future events over which we have no control. I want you to look at that. Fear and worry is a self-centered Centered focus. I am focusing on me and how this is going to affect me. That drives my fear on on something that hasn't happened but might happen in the future of which I have no control. Now, the world gives us plenty of opportunities to be afraid. Our media has made a fortune on making us fearful of things, right? Real or perceived. We have plenty of things that we can walk around and be afraid of. And it struck me last week when Michael was talking that maybe 
That's why over 300 times in the Bible, we are told to not be afraid. That's significant. Maybe there's something to the fact that, we, that, that God knew that we were going to be dealing with fear in real and significant ways all of our life. And, and so he is encouraging us and telling us, do not be afraid. Some of the places that, those, that that phrase is mentioned, all the way back in the beginning in Genesis, in chapter 26, God tells Isaac, do not be afraid for I am with you and will bless you. In Isaiah 41, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just have faith. We see these words in the story that we're going to look at today from Matthew, that Michael read, read the story. It's a well-known story. We've, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard the story of Peter walking on water with Jesus. So I need to give you a little bit of setup of where we're at in this story before we go to the, to the verses. Right just prior to this event was one of the one of mo- most well-known miracles is when Jesus feeds more than 5,000 men, which actually means, because the Bible only references 5,000 men, it says, in their families. That means that it was more like 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. So this has just happened. That's... That's an incredible miracle, right? Right after that, Jesus tells the disciples, you take the boat, you go on across to the other side of the lake. I am going to take some time with my father. I'm going to go up into the hills and I'm going to pray by myself. So this is where we pick up in this story in Matthew. Follow as I read it. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Right out of the gate in this story, we see that the disciples were afraid. The text says they were terrified, actually. Well, who wouldn't be? Even though they had been walking with Jesus for a long period of time, and they, and they knew who Jesus was, they didn't recognize him. They instead focused on the things that they were sure must be true from their past experience. What the past, their previous experience tells them about the situation is that it can't be Jesus. We left him on the shore. It can't even be a real person because who can possibly walk on water? Fear. Ah, it must be a ghost. That's what they, that was their response. But then Jesus speaks to them and tells them to not be afraid. He says, take courage, I am here. Take courage, I am here. This isn't just Jesus saying, hey guys, don't worry, man, it's me. You know me, it's, it's fine, it's all good. I'm Jesus, not a ghost. This phrase is used, is used intentionally, and it is actually a phrase that the disciples would have immediately understood. The Greek translation here is that Jesus says, it is I, or I am. 
here. This is Jesus directly linking himself to the God of the Old, Testa- the Old Testament who delivered his people from danger over and over and over again. I, he is saying, I am the God of the universe, the one who created the waves and the wind, so don't be afraid. He is letting them know right away, this is who I am. You know me. Peter is the one who responds and says, Jesus, if it's really you, then call me out to the water. And Jesus says, yes, come. He says, step out of the boat onto the water and walk towards me, Peter. He says, trust me, come toward me. You can trust me. Peter trusts and gets out of the boat. And he starts walking toward Jesus. On the water, y'all. On the water. He starts walking on the water. And then Peter lets what he has learned over time creep in. The things that he's packed away in his box. He lets past experience as a fisherman and all he knows about water and storms when you're out on the water take a hold of him and he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Fear. I can't walk on water. I've never seen anyone else walk on the water. I am going to drown. Yeah, that's what my response would have been. If you think about it, though, the safest that Peter ever was in this situation was when he first steps out of the boat. At least for that moment when his eyes are focused on Jesus, that's when he was safer. Not when he was in the boat, when the storm was raging. Not when he lost his focus on Jesus when he was walking on the water. The safest moment in this story is when Peter got out of the boat and trusted that Jesus could, could let him walk on water, that Jesus had called him to walk on the water. The result of Peter's fear is that he begins to sink, and it happens in the very moment that he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He relies on what his fear has taught him over time instead of what Jesus has taught him. Now, before you come down too hard on Peter, in, in, his, in this moment of him taking his eyes off of Jesus, I want you to remember something really significant. There were 11 other disciples in the boat. They never tried to get out. This is not the story of Matthew walking on the water. This is not the story of James walking on the water. Peter is the one who had the faith initially to get out of the boat. I recently read that faith can be de- defined in this way. Faith is concentration on Jesus. Faith is concentration on Jesus. But it's so easy to get distracted, right? It's so easy to focus on the storm around us, the tossing of the waves, the wind. Everything is crashing around us, and it's so easy for us to focus on those things that are vying for our attention instead of focusing on Jesus. So back to the text Just as quickly as the fear came over Peter, he released it, and he cried out to Jesus, Save me, Lord! This is another moment that Peter actually releases his fear, and he trusts. He reached out to the one, the only one that he knew could save him, with probably the shortest prayer in the history of the world. Save me, Lord. Save me. This is release. So how do we respond to our fears? Well, a common way that we respond to our fears is that we develop defense mechanisms, 
We try to protect ourselves. We create a cycle for our fear. The cycle looks a lot like this. We feel the fear. We figure out a way to cope with it. That usually includes some of these defense mechanisms. We then get a feeling of peace. And then the fear subsides ever so slightly. And then we repeat the cycle. We go back to the fear. I looked up some of the most common defense mechanisms. Let me tell you, let me tell you what some of them are and see if any of them connect with you. One of them is denial. I'm just going to pretend that something bad isn't really happening because if I don't acknowledge it, then it can't hurt me and I don't have to be afraid of it. Has anybody done that? Here's one. Reaction formation. This is where you actually feel one thing, which is the fear, but you overreact and overrespond in some other way. Maybe you're actually afraid of being alone, but you spend a lot of time talking about how awesome your free time is, how you love living by yourself, that you love being single, but actually you're afraid of being alone. Here's another one, compensation. I'm not afraid of this thing over here, and you know how I'm going to prove it? I'm going to do this other thing over here that's scary. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm not going to talk about that. Instead, I'm going to go over here and look at this lizard and not be afraid of this lizard. <laughs> See, I'm not afraid. Another one is repression. This one can be described as maybe, maybe back early, early in your, in your life, you were maybe bitten by a dog, let's say. And you don't actually remember the event. You don't actually remember that it happened. But you are deathly afraid of dogs for a, no apparent reason to you. You have repressed this fear. It's based in a real circumstance, but you don't actually have knowledge of it or remember it. These are just a couple common defense mechanisms. There's a long list of them. We build these up so that we can keep circling that pattern, that fear pattern, so that it seems like we are controlling our fear instead of our fear controlling us. And we don't want to let these behaviors go because they've become familiar and somewhat comforting to us and because it takes a heck of a lot of trust. Our fears and our ways of dealing with them comfort us in some strange way so we hesitate to let go of them. But we are called to release them, to stop finding the ways to deal with or live with our fear and instead break that cycle of fear by truly releasing it, by finding real peace, real release through real trust. That change of releasing the things that we've been clinging to is scary even if we know it's best and if it's for our ultimate healing and our ultimate good. You see, we can actually miss out on what God has for us. We can trade the extraordinary for just the ordinary if we are giving in to our fear. I asked permission to share this story. I want to tell you about my friend Martha Hanna, who just got back with the team from Uganda yesterday. Everybody say, welcome back, Martha. Martha first went to Haiti in 2010, and it was just one week after one of the most devastating earthquakes the country had ever experienced. It killed a quarter of a million people and displaced a million other people. Martha, at least at that time, I didn't know her as well as I know her now, but I knew enough to know that she was not an adrenaline junkie. She, up to that point at least, 
I think she would tell you, and she has said this to me, the most adventurous thing that she'd done is leave the church that she had grown up in with her family and come to E3, (laughs) which was an adventurous thing. Ask her about that story sometime. Now, she had been on mission trips at that time, but she definitely was not one to rush towards disasters, especially not to completely unfamiliar parts of the world. But Martha saw Jesus walking toward her on the water, so to speak, and and telling her to come, trust me, and go with me to where the people are living on the streets and are afraid to go inside because the building still may collapse. Go with me, Martha, to a place where there is complete devastation. Go with me and join me with a group of people that I know you have never met except for through email and phone calls. She not only had to face her own fears to do this, she had to face the real fears of the people around her, some of them that loved her very much and who she loved very much, some of those people that she respected very much, who had real fear and concern about this trip, about her going to this unsafe and unstable place. A few days into her first trip, her very first trip to Haiti, she was talking to her husband, Michael, on the phone and talking about all the fear that she could see around her, the chaos in the people, and the fear that that was creating. And she was doing a lot of reading in her devotions about fear, and this is what she said to Michael. If God has so much to say, if God has to say so much to us about not being afraid, then maybe we're not supposed to live such safe lives. Martha got out of the boat. The difference between she and Peter is that she has kept her eyes on Jesus the last 10 years, and it has revolutionized Martha and Michael's lives. They are the reason. That is the reason. Martha's response to that situation and her trust in that calling when Jesus said, walk to me, her trust in that has established a partnership with this church and work that is amazing work that God is doing in Haiti. We would have missed out on that opportunity had she not had that faith. If you, live to choo- if you choose to live in fear, you will miss the opportunity to walk on the water. In fact, it's not easy and it's very difficult and the world doesn't like it when you choose to do something counter to what they would themselves do or what they think you should be doing. They don't like it when you choose to do something that's brave when they see people living lives that are full of peace and free from fear, it's unsettling at best to some people. We ourselves don't always get it right. The fear obviously creeps in, and we don't trust. We have moments of not trusting. We forget to release, and we take our eyes off Jesus for just a second, and we start to focus on the things that we have learned about the storm and the wind and the waves. My past experience tells me to respond this way, to expect this outcome, and to not even try this thing for fear. But God has promised to care for you and to be with you in any situation. So I want you to consider a new cycle for your fear. Now this this cycle, these things that I'm suggesting to you, were bred out of time with my counselor during that dark season when I was recovering from my ankle injury and I was dealing with anxiety and fear. 
And this was something that I was prompted to do, and I've kept up this practice, and it's helped me tremendously. Don't mishear that and think that I never have fear. But it has helped me tremendously, and I want to share these tools with you. First, confess your fears to God. It's not like he doesn't know them. Speak the words. Be honest. Tell him what you are afraid of and why. Tell him your thoughts and your feelings about it. The next step would be to journal and write down the ways that you have seen him care for you. You have seen him show up for you in the past. Be specific with those memories. Write down the things that you were afraid were going to happen and the way that he provided and walked you through it. Even if it didn't make sense to you, even if on the other side of it, it didn't completely make sense to you. Think of times that you were afraid and then it either didn't or it did happen, but still you knew that God was with you. We have to write these things down because we have short-term memory. We forget. You know what we remember for a really long time? Our fear. What we forget really quickly is the way that God has delivered us from situations. Write it down so that when you are afraid, you can at least go back and read not someone else's words, but your words, your new past experience. Be intentional about thanking God for those stories, for those ways that you felt his presence and you knew that he was there with you. And then repeat that cycle. Now you've created a new cycle for your fear, a new way to deal with it, and you need to be disciplined with that. You need to be disciplined with your remembering. Our hope isn't that bad things won't happen, because they will. Bad things happen all the time. We do lose loved ones. People we care about do actually get sick. And we do unexpectedly sometimes lose our job. But we don't have to be afraid in those moments because God has promised to be with us in those bad times, in those hard things. It says this in 2 Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Listen and look at this verse. Fear is a spirit, and it is not one that has been given to us by God. What has been given to us by God is power, love, and self-discipline that comes from trusting who he is, not who we are, but who he is, and what he is capable of doing in our lives. This is our only protection from fear. It's trusting that we can actually release our fears to him. God is faithful. I have proof. I have evidence. I have a journal filled of stories. His promises to be with me, and he has been. His care for us is relentless. His promises are true. And he is the only one that we can give our fears to. His presence is the only place that we can feel the release that we need to feel the release from our fears. I'm going to invite the band to come out. And when they're, while they're getting set up, I want you to consider a couple of things from our text today. Who are you most like in this story? Are you like Peter when he gets out of the boat and first steps out onto the water? Do you have that kind of faith and trust? And maybe you have in the past, but maybe that's not where you are right this minute. And maybe you are. 
Or are you more like Peter when he gives in to his fear and he starts to sink? I've been there. I've been there recently. Let me ask you this. Are you more like the other 11 disciples that didn't even try to get out of the boat? That didn't even consider the thought as far as we know. What are the things that you are afraid of that are keeping you from what God has planned for you? What are the fears that you have held on to and put into your box over the years that are clouding your trust of God? What are the things that you're trying to control with your fear? There's at least one more thing that I want you to consider from this story about Peter. When At what point did the wind die down and the seas stop rolling? It was when they climbed back into the boat. The text says, when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. It stopped when Peter and Jesus climbed back into the boat. It stopped once Peter and the disciples were with Jesus. Once they were focused on Jesus. When we worry and we act from a place of fear, we are taking on responsibilities that God never intended or wanted us to take on. We are not responsible for results. We are not responsible, or only responsible, sorry, we are only responsible for our faithfulness, for our obedience, for our trust. We are only responsible for, le- for getting out of the boat and focusing on Jesus, saying, I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will trust that you will place firm steps in front of me, even if those steps are actually on water, are on rolling seas, and it doesn't make any sense at all. I will trust that as soon as I put my foot down, the step will be firm, and that will be the way for me to go. It doesn't have to look safe. It probably won't. But I will trust you, and I will walk to you, and I know I will be able to do it, I will trust, and I will not be afraid. Who doesn't want to live a life that looks like that? As scary as it is, isn't that the extraordinary? And wouldn't we rather have that than the ordinary? 